Well, it was December 2008 that uh, was the very first Christmas we as a church uh, ever had when we were meeting in the movie theater. Um, it was uh, that Christmas that we started our, in Luke chapters 1 and 2, uh, walking through the account of the birth of Christ. And it's turned out every fourth year, we go back to Luke chapters 1 and 2 and uh, rewalk uh, the birth of Christ. We did it in 2008. We did it in 2012. We did it in 2016. And we're going to do it in 2020. So if you would, would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. I love Luke's account of the birth of Christ. Uh, today it's the announcement of Emmanuel, announcement of Emmanuel, and I want for you to know uh, these four Sundays in this series, this is not going to be a bullet-pointed, outline, follow-the-format-on-the-screen kind of a, a sermons. This is, hear the story. Um, this is here the story. Uh, today we have the longest part of the story. We've got 56 verses. It's going to be the longest amount of text, probably the longest time in the series to go through this. But in it, uh, I want for you to know that it's not a massive note-taking as it is as much just a massive grab-a-hold-of. Let's think less Western culture. Let's think more Eastern culture. And let's hear the story and just savor it and let the Lord use it. Well, today we're going to meet three individuals. Uh, three individuals. Two of them are older. One of them is younger. Uh, they were not famous. Uh, they were not powerful. Uh, they were not privileged. They were not high society. They definitely were not internet uh, uh, celebrities uh, in their time. Uh, they were just rather normal people. And I'll say a rather normal older couple and a rather normal uh, younger teen girl. A woman. And uh, as we're going to see in this uh, time, the Lord steps into their lives. And let me say it this way the Lord steps into their lives not for the purpose of making their lives easier, He steps into their lives that their lives would be living stories of His glory. Living stories of His glory. And friend, that is the same story that the Lord wants to do in our lives. It's not about making lives easy, it's about making our lives living stories for his glory. And in fact, the Lord, when he stepped into their lives, it actually brought them a whole lot of trial. I mean, it brought them ridicule, it brought them hurt, it brought them rejection, it even brought about the death of their two firstborn sons. Um, the Lord stepped into their lives not to make their lives easy. Uh, boy, that goes back to James, but to make their lives a living story for his glory. So uh, we're going to grab a hold of these rather three normal individuals, and I genuinely, I think of that if they were in the room here today, they would stand here and say, hey, I, I know that you just went through James, and I want for you to know that the Lord is doing a work. The Lord is not about making your life easy. The Lord is about doing a work in your life for his glory. And I believe they would fully declare that from their own stories as we're going to see. Well, we're going to begin uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. 1 through 4 is actually originally one sentence. 
It's one long sentence. Let me read it, verses 1 through 4. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, uh, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Uh, Luke is the human author of the book of Luke. He was a physician, and I'm really going to add, he was also a historian. But kind of first and foremost, he's known as being a physician. And I'll say this, I've had the chance to know some really good doctors over the years, and good doctors love good research. Good doctors detest false research. Uh, Good doctors know the critical importance of really good data because they know that good data can have application into life or death. And so they have a high value of correct information. And Luke here in these first four verses is telling us that we're about to read an eyewitness compiled narrative that he's pulled together with it. Let me say it in modern day terms. I think Luke is opening up uh, his gospel by saying this. Hey friends, what you are about to read is not fake news. Okay, what you are about to read is not fake news. News. This is not like some fake fable. Uh, this is true. This has been researched. It's been compiled. It's been put together. And his whole goal is to tell a correct account to someone. Uh, it's the necessary data for him pulled together. And friends, it doesn't tell us everything we want to know. But in, it does tell us everything that we need to know to be able to understand what took place. So it's not an exhaustive compilation, uh, but it is exactly God's breathed words for us to be able to know about one of the most exciting events in all of redemptive history, the birth and the coming and the life of Christ. And we're gonna be there. So here we have it. It's written by someone, Dr. Luke. It's written to someone, Theophilus, uh, and it's there to tell the facts about someone, Jesus of Nazareth. So, no fake news here, friends. This is all God's word, right? No fake news. Here we go. Let's just keep on moving. Verse 5. Here we go into the information. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. A few pieces of information about Herod. Herod the Great here. A little bit about the days at the time. Herod the Great, he reigned from 47 to 4 BC. Uh, He was half Jewish. And it really showed uh, with him in that he came along and he helped in the expanding and the rebuilding or the improving of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. If you could say that's kind of the half Jewish part of him. The half non-Jewish part of him shows up in that at the entrance into where you're coming into the temple grounds, he, he put the Roman eagle over it. So it like so tells you who he is. He's half Jewish and kind of his heart's half there. And yet uh, he also puts the Roman eagle uh, over as you enter in kind of to remind you maybe of his other half, if you will. He was a brute. He was an absolute brute. He was a tyrant. Uh, He had at least, uh, or he had nine wives. Uh, One of them he had executed. Uh, Not the kind of guy you want to have over for Christmas dinner. Just going to say it that way. Uh, that's a little bit about him. The days of Israel, these are dark days. 
really when you think about it, putting the whole movement of Scripture together, it's been thousands of years now since the initial prophecies of the coming Messiah. And I would even carry that all the way back to Genesis 3. Uh, with that. It's been thousands of years, and it's like, where's the Messiah? It's now been some 700 years since Isaiah's prophecy, and between the Old Testament and into the New Testament, if you will, God has been silent for 400 years. And, and there, when you understand that, when you see that, at the time of the day that what's going on, uh, they're thinking, where's the one born of the woman? Where's the one from the line of Abraham, from the line of Judah and Jesse and David, born in Bethlehem, that would bruise Satan's head? Where, where is that uh, oh, one? In fact, uh, at this time, many Israelites, because of, oh, there's a lesson in this, friends, because of what they were seeing over time going around in the circumstances around them, they changed their theology. And in that, they began, some of them thought that the idea of eternity with God uh, wasn't actually going to be what, what God meant. They actually had some of this idea that eternity was lived through one's offspring. By the way, why do I bring that up? Because if you don't have a child at the time, imagine the implications of that. And we're about to meet a couple who doesn't have an offspring. Okay, there's just so much depth here in the time of what's going on. But know this, Emmanuel would arrive exactly when the Godhead had planned it and ordained it to be exactly on time, not a nanosecond too late, not a nanosecond too early, right on time, and it's time in the text. It's so cool. So we're going to meet this uh, older couple here, Zechariah and Elizabeth. The Lord steps into the life of this older couple. Let me read verses 5 and 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, uh, there was a priest named what? Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was? Elizabeth, and, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. A little bit about this couple. Zechariah, we see in verse 5, he's a priest of the division of Abijah. Uh, he was a lay priest. Uh, he wasn't full-time. He was a lay priest, which is so common the case there. A little bit of that in just a second. Old Testament, or, or priests were determined out of the Old Testament by lineage. You go to First Chronicles 24, and there was an order of 24 families from the line of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' right-hand man. Aaron was the, the first Old Testament priest. Uh, God appointed these 24 families uh, uh, to the duty of serving in the house of the Lord as priests. In Ezra 2, uh, we find four of the 24 families returning from ex uh, exile, but uh, Nehemiah then reinstitutes the, the full 24 divisions. Abijah is the eighth division. That's the division, the lineage, the line, if you will, that, that uh, Zechariah is from. And here's the point. Each of the 24 divisions would serve one week every six months in the temple. And so twice a year, two weeks a year. And so this is, uh, Zechariah's time is up here. And it's been estimated that at the time of Luke chapter 1, again because of the lay priest and the lineage thing, that there were some 18,000 priests and Levites. When you do all the math, and I don't have time to go into all the math today, but when you just carry it on out, it tells you this. 
really being able to, as a lay priest, go in and offer up a sacrifice, uh, an incense offering, is going to probably happen one time in your life, okay, as all this kind of works out. Maybe twice, but one time in your life. And I'm just telling you, friends, watch this. God is in the dice, literally here. Uh, let's, let's keep on going here with Zechariah. Then Elizabeth, Elizabeth, the text tells us she's from the daughters of Aaron. Also, priestly lineage, so important and so cool with that. Zechariah is from a priestly lineage. He marries a young woman, Elizabeth, also from a priestly lineage. And here's what I love as a 59-year-old man who's married. Here is all those decades later, even in the hurts of life, this couple is abiding with the Lord. That's a story. That is a story. They're abiding with the Lord. Now be careful. Don't carry that into thinking. Well, therefore, they earned what God is now going to do. Don't go there. That's bad theology thinking. We're going to see here and continuing in some of the language. It's by grace, friends. But I would term it this way. They were pursuing the Lord and they were available for the Lord. And the Lord's going to do something. They didn't earn it. But they were pressing into the Lord and available tools for the Lord. Verse 7. Uh, and, but they had no child. Now there's a whole story there. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Likely, uh, we don't know for sure, but likely this couple is probably in their 60s at the time. And they're living righteously. Uh, they're living righteously, pursuing God, abiding with the Lord in a dark time. When bad theology is kind of being built up and they have no children. They heard of that. And friends, some of you may know that. And you may understand what's going on here more than I do in this. But they're barren. I just want to remind us the barrenness even in the Old Testament. Sarah was barren. Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mom, Hannah. They were barren. And you can say, well, you know, God ended up doing a great thing. And, and they had a child true and, and the Lord did. And yet, I want to just say that doesn't take away the hurt and the pain. Or the questioning over the time. And uh, what a sweet couple here. Verse 8, now while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, that's what I made reference to just a little bit ago in the timing of that, uh, twice a year, according to the custom of the priesthood, uh, he was chosen by lot, and roll the dice, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of the incense. Okay, I've got to set this scene because it's so cool in how the story all works out here. So you have an incense offering. Incense offerings were done in the morning and the evening every day. Every day, every day. And morning and the evening. Uh, only a priest who had never uh, done the incense offering would be done, would, would be the one doing it. They shared this. Okay, so they're all able to participate in it. 
One priest would enter the temple uh, to conduct the offering. So let's walk through it now, with a picture of the temple uh, up here on the side screen with this. So the court of the Gentiles, that's the, kind of the big area outside of the temple grounds. Jews and Gentiles could be there. Uh, then you come in where you have the beautiful gate that's kind of up front here you know, where the arrow is. That leads into then what's called the court of women. Only Jews could come in here. Men and women could come in here. Uh, in this area. We're going to see this come about later at the end of this series with Anna and Simeon, the court of the women. Then you have the court of the Israelites. It's almost like the doorway that leads into what's behind that, into that back area called the court of priests. The court of priests is, has this outdoor area. That's where the altar for animal sacrifices was done. Animal sacrifices were not done in the back building where the Holy of Holies is, but it was done there uh, outdoors with that. Uh, then that leads into the temple porch, which then leads into the inner sanctuary where the altar and the incense offering is given. Uh, behind that is the Holy of Holies. Zechariah does not go back there for that. And so verse 9, Zechariah is chosen by lot. By the way, this was a way that they did it to circumvent human bias. Yep, even that could happen then with things. And so God put it up to where, again, this was a shared opportunity with it. And so the dice are rolled, if you will, and it's Zechariah. And as I said, the Lord's in the dice. Uh, don't take that to Vegas, uh, but the Lord's in the dice, and here, this one out of 18,000 lay priests, and it's Zachariah's day. Friends, if you don't get all of this, it, you just miss the depth of how God is. Listen, God's been silent for 400 years, and he's back, if you will, with what he is doing and carrying out his plans. And so Zechariah walks into the inner sanctuary. It's 30 foot by 60 foot, 60 foot tall. He's in all by himself in there. He sees the altar of the incense. He can see the, the veil, the curtain that separates him from the Holy of Holies. That was like 30 foot by 30 foot there that's going on. And this is just an amazing, amazing moment. And while he's in the inner sanctuary uh, doing his incense, you know, preparing or in the process of doing the incense offering, uh, what happens? Uh, verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Like, <laughs> I wasn't expecting anyone else in the room uh, with it. And fear fell upon him, and the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Friend, I don't know what the time today, but I, there, man, there's a message in there right there. Prayer's been behind this whole stuff going on. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You will call his name what? John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Oh, this is so cool. It's just so cool with what's going on. So essentially, here we have here all that's taking place, verse 15, about this. It's basically your son will, will, will be living under a Nazarite vow. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his womb, verse 16 and 17. talks about turning the hearts of, uh, uh, of the wicked, turning the hearts of the children uh, of Israel, uh, turning the hearts of the Father. So interesting. In that day, friends, dads, now hear me on this. In that day, uh, fathers were known to uh, be strict and harsh, which I would call biblically a sinful expression of responsibility. And that was kind of the norm in the day. And how sweet is it that the Lord's saying here that with John coming in, something's going to happen even with dads in the hearts of fathers with it and the people of Israel and even those that are wicked and unwise. There's just some cool, cool stuff going on. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how'd you get in here? <laughs> That's what I'd be thinking. Uh, he says, how shall I know this? I believe the New International Version says, how can I be sure? Uh, For I am an old man. <laughs> And my wife is advanced in years. Boy, friends, I'm telling you, if all of a sudden it found out that Karen was pregnant, I'm relating to this boy here at this stage of life, man. <laughs> and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Whoa. And I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day of these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So many other things I want to know in this, but we're told the things that we are. So when the priest came into the temple, I'm sorry, so Zechariah here in this idea here, how shall I know this? It's important to understand that he's questioning the capability of the promise. It's not just how will that happen, like I'm 60 years old, and plus, and so is my wife, like this isn't supposed to happen, but really the main thrust of his questioning is the promise itself. Keep that in mind for when we get to Mary. He's questioning like how can the capability of the promise be for sure? Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Again, so many other things I'd like to know, but Luke is giving us the key pieces of information here. So when the priest would go in, they would do the incense offering. Remember, morning, evening, every day. The people are outside. You can just imagine it. The people are outside. They know exactly that this is going on with this. This is a special moment in the day, twice a day, that all the people are there aware of what is going on. The, the, the priest would then come out of uh, the inner sanctuary. He would. The other priest there in the court of priests would 
join him up kind of up on the steps. And what normally would happen is they would then declare number six. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Friends, I'm telling you, this is like a cool, cool thing that we so miss with uh, not very many traditions and things in the day. And they would do that twice a day, but, but this time it's different. He comes out of the door and he's like, <laughs> I don't know how it's going on, but he can't talk. And we're told that he's even trying to tell them what's going on. They figure something's going on with it, and he steps out, but he's not speaking. And Luke just has us step away from the temple. Uh, knowing that information, and then they're back home. Pick up verse 24. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. By the way, some of you women can totally understand in ways I can't fully. Why wouldn't she, why would she just keep it to herself for five months? whole number of reasons potentially with that. But I'm telling you, this is deep stuff that's going on here. And she is pregnant. And uh, the Lord has stepped big into this older couple. Again, not to make their lives easier, but to do a work in their lives that they would be increased living stories for his glory. And From the text, we now meet a young woman Mary, and out of the blue, this young, engaged teenager is shocked by the news that she's going to bring the promised one that uh, the prior one is going to announce. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. It's likely been now here six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. It's a month since this has been made public. Gabriel is sent by God to Nazareth. By the way, Nazareth, the far northern part of Israel. Many of the Jews in the southern part of Israel disdained those up by Galilee and up by Nazareth. Why? Because they lived close to the border of the Gentiles. Just reminds me of James. God's people, no partiality. And yet here they are living not just because they're born up in Nazareth. They were kind of seen as unkosher. Uh, But God shows up in unkosher. Gabriel is sent by God to Mary in Nazareth. Uh, Here she is, a Jewess uh, of tribe of Judah, a descendant of David. She's a teenager. We're told she's a virgin. Uh, Implied on all of this is she's poor. She's engaged to a a likely poor carpenter named Joseph. Uh, Just a little bit about betrothal. Uh, It was called for a solemn oath of commitment Uh, in the presence of witnesses, including a pledge of money or written declaration. Um, It's a bit different in that day from some of the aspects or some similarities with what we have today, but the bride's father usually presented a dowry to the groom, uh, sometimes even to the daughter. Uh, The groom generally presented gifts of jewelry and clothes to the bride. 
Hey, ladies, there you go. Uh, betrothal implied a commitment nearly as binding as marriage. If the groom died while they were engaged, uh, the, the woman would be called a widow. Uh, to dissolve a betrothal was a serious process, basically equivalent to, uh, in that day, to what it took to file for divorce. And betrothed couples were referred to as husband and wife, uh, but there was no cohabitation, there was no sexual intimacy. In fact, if they did, it was viewed as adultery with what was going on at the time. I bring this up because Mary being told this is a crazy big deal. A crazy big deal uh, in with what's going on in her life. It's not going to make her life easier. I'm just going to tell you that. Verse 28 and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Uh, a few things here because this verse gets some bad theological directions uh, regarding Mary. A little bit of language. Greeting. It's in the form of an imperative mood. It's an excited greeting. It's like, greetings. Uh, I, you just Listen, Gabriel's like, he's just, it's happening. Okay. In all of this, and there's an imperative mood. Oh, favored one. It's called a perfect passive participle in the language. It's perfect participle. That means the favoring that take place here occurred in the past, but it has an ongoing impact. Favoring is not happening at this moment. The favoring already took place. It's a passive participle. That means that the favoring was done by someone other than Mary. Uh, maybe pull it together. Uh, Mary is the object of God's work. The favor bestowed upon her is God's favor. L let me say it this way. Uh, she was graced. That's really what it's saying. Mary didn't earn this, just like Zachary and Elizabeth didn't earn it. Mary was God-graced in this whole movement of it. It is not a statement about Mary's moral excellence. Mary was not without sin. Mary is not the fourth person of the Trinity. She is just a normal, Yahweh-loving, pursuing-after young woman that the Lord in his grace said her. Why her? No idea. Oh, yes I do, God's sovereign choice, okay? So let's not put Mary on some Trinity uh, pedestal. Those three spots are already taken. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled, uh, just like Zechariah, by the way, at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be <laughs> in it. Totally get it with her on this. Um, here the Lord is with you. I just said in that uh, you're receiving a special task, kind of like was given to Isaac and Jacob and Moses and, and Jeremiah. And she's troubled with it. It's like, what's going on here? She's confused. She's perplexed. Uh, she tried to discern it. It says, listen, this is a thinking girl. This is a young woman that's just not in some emotional woo teen moment. This, this is a thinking girl on what is going on here, and she's literally trying to figure it out. And here Gabriel makes four statements of great news and six specific things about the text, verses 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. How sweet. For you have found favor with God. You've been graced by God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name, what? 
Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Oh, friends, there is a massive pile of crazy cool stuff there. Just real quickly, uh, four statements of great news that I see in it. Verse 30, do not be afraid. How sweet is that? I mean, he's showing up here and turning her life inside out and upside down. And Mary, I got some great news for you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Another item of great news. You have found favor with God. Uh, You have not earned favor. You found it. I didn't know it was there. Boom, I found it. Yeah, that's graced. Okay? That's graced in this, unexpectedly graced. Verse 31, and you will, you will conceive, you'll become pregnant. Man, how many couples when they're pregnant, how great of a news is that, right? Great news uh, when that happens. And you will give birth. We may pass right by that, but friends, in that day, that was great news to know that in advance. In that day with medical things. I mean, and you're gonna give birth, by the way, in it, great news. Uh, Six specific things about the child. Verse 31, uh, your baby's going to be a boy. I mean this seriously. Not a Greek god, not an alien, not some energy force, not a daughter, a son. That matters from what Scripture has declared in the past. Uh, His name will be Jesus. Boy, that saved a lot of time. Don't have to go out buy the baby books and I guess the internet now, but um, Jesus, it means Jehovah is salvation. How cool is that? What a great reminder. Verse 32, he will be great. Your children's, your child's not going to be just normal like everyone else. There's going to be something great about him. And here we go. Uh, fourth, he will be called son of the most high. By the way, notice the text does not say child of the most high. Son of the Most High. It is a difference. There's an equivalency. There's an understanding of the language in the day at the time that, there is, that your child is going to be great and is going to be equivalency with the Most High. It is a divinity statement with what's going on here. And he will give, and God will give him the Davidic throne. He's going to be a reigning king. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, an Old Testament covenant fulfillment statement for what's going on. And, and these six statements, they declare the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, the kingship of Christ, the messiahship of Christ. It's full divinity as full humanity on a redemption-fulfilling mission. This is a massive a statement with what's going on. And Mary has a question for Gabriel. Oh, Mary, be careful, be careful, because Zechariah got muted. Be careful with what you ask. Let's take a look at it. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Zechariah, cutting to the chase, Zechariah questioned the how, but he especially questioned the promise itself. I think when you go back and you look at Zechariah's statement in the interaction there, Zechariah, you question the promise itself. You question the capability of the, not necessarily the how's that going to happen. My wife and I are old. Mary here, I think, she believes the promise. We see that in verse 45 later, but questions the how. Like, wow, okay, so I'm going to conceive and I'm going to give birth to the Messiah. Okay. 
But how? There's a difference with what's going on here. And in this, and literally her statement is, since a man I have not come to know. I mean, this is usually how you have a child. And that hasn't happened. And uh, she's asking not the questioning of the promise itself, but how is this going to come about? Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God, the equivalent one of God. And behold, by the way, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, yeah, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Boy, and if anyone knows, Gabriel does. What a cool statement. And then Mary's response. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Wow. Here's this teen gal. I'm telling you, teen gals, there you go. I mean, this is a young Yahweh-pursuing woman. God shows up in her life in an unexpected, unplanned way, and she's like, I'm God's handmaid. I'm his doulos. I'm his servant. Good. God, that's your plan. Wasn't my plan. I'm in. I do have a question. Like, how is this going to happen? <laughs> and, uh, and yet, she doesn't get muted. And um, I think you just see this beautiful young lady with what's taking place. Way to go, young ladies. Consider the ramifications on these three people. Zachariah and Elizabeth shouldn't be having a child and they're having a child. Can you imagine the hubbub in their town? The gossip, the shaming that's going to go on with Mary, and she knows it. And the brutality of people and what they think and what they think they know. It's amazing. And it causes me to ask, when our God shows up, when our sovereign God allows unplanned, unexpected things, unexpected times to come into our lives, how do you respond? There's a story for that here, friends. Hear the story. Because God is not stepping into their lives to make their lives easy. He's stepping in their lives to use to, for their lives to be living stories of his glory. Increasingly so. And God, if this is the way you would have it for my life, for their life, to be increased living stories for your glory, I may not get it. I may not even like it. I may love it. I don't know. But God, I'm in. I'm in. And we need to finish. Mary and Elizabeth have this sweet moment. 
Verse 39, in those days Mary arose, went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry. So the, the Spirit of God is in her proclaiming truth here, saying, blessed are you among women, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why uh, is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She knows information that only God could be giving her. Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Ladies, you know what it is who've had children, what it is to have that little booger in there rolling around. I wonder what this one was like. Verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what is spoken to her from the Lord. There's so many things, I just don't have the time. There's so many deep truths in that, even knowing that Mary received this from the Lord with what's going on. And then Mary has a response. It's called the Magnificat. Here we have, she declares this response, and it's sweet. You can spend time with it. These stated truths, she declares these praise on behalf of herself, and then on behalf of coming generations redeemed in Christ, and then on behalf of her own people. Let me read it, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy, set apart, is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And then uh, to Israel, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then return to her home. What a team there, by the way. Can you imagine three months there together, the conversations they had in those three months? I'm giving birth to the one who's coming before the promised one. I know, and I'm giving birth to the promised one. I think Mary likely stayed around until John was born. The scene of the manger is far bigger than just the scene at the manger. Okay. The Lord is not just hurrying up and just getting himself here. The Lord is working through people after 400 years of silence and God's at work. And you can just hear the drum beats of the coming of the Messiah. The Lord came not to make our lives easier. He came that our lives would be increased stories for his glory, friend. For them and for us. So Lord, we lay that before you now as we just kind of are in this series together and we savor the time around and leading up to the manger. And we lift your name high. 
How sweet are you that Luke gives this amazing account of the birth of Christ as as his coming and, and yet so much of it is about what you are at work doing in people around the actual birth. God, you're interested in doing a work in our lives as well. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone in here who doesn't really understand the meaning behind and where all of this is going, I pray this month as we study these two chapters that it would become clear as can be as to why the Messiah came. He came not to make our lives easy, but to allow our lives to be living stories for his for your glory. And I just pray that would be the case increasingly so. So Lord, next week we get to join in on the arrival of Emmanuel and we look forward to it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.